0: everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about the Parsha. Our episodes in the Book of B'rishit focus on family and interpersonal dynamics. These conversations are candid, insightful, and respectful. We aim not to psychoanalyze the biblical figures, but to learn from them as we stumble through our own beautifully messy lives. It's not too late to register for yearly classes. Check out the Matan website for all relevant information. This week's episode is dedicated in memory of Elisheva Frist, beloved daughter, sister, aunt, and friend, who we tragically lost a few weeks ago. Elisheva was an unbelievably creative, kind, smart, balanced, and principled person who, in her quiet way, moved and touched the lives of so many – her passing is an unfathomable loss, and I pray that her family and friends will be able to find meaningful ways to carry her with them, in spite of her physical absence. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone, or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. Parshat Noach opens with a descriptive portrait of Noach's family and the explanation of the flood's necessity. The Flood is a story with multiple parts. Noah's physical preparations, the actual flooding of the earth, the receding waters, the exit of Noach and his family from the ark, the covenant of the rainbow symbolizing God's resolve to never repeat world destruction as a solution to man's corruption, and the somewhat enigmatic story of Noach's planting a grape vineyard, which results in a shameful encounter with his children that sets up a paradigm for their future success and subservience to one another. After the flood narrative, chapter 10 contains what scholars call the Table of Nations, which maps out the population dispersion of Noah's three sons. Yefet transforms into a sea-dwelling people, often associated with the Greeks, Ham becomes land warriors associated with the nations of Canaan, and Shem, from who Abraham descends, are likely nomads, forming a physical bridge between land and water. The Parsha continues with the famous Tower of Babel story, which will be the focus of today's conversation, and closes with the genealogy of Shem, eventually Avram's family. This narrows the Torah's spotlight on the family of Terah and Avraham, moving away from the universal focus of Breshi's first 11 chapters, and shifts to one family who will be charged with the first attempt to model a perfected moral and religious existence for the world. My guest today is Rabbi Professor Sam Liebens, associate professor in the philosophy department at the University of Haifa, who was also an Orthodox rabbi and Jewish educator. His first book was a study of Bertrand Russell's evolving theories about the nature of meaning. His second book is a study analytic philosophy of Judaism. Sam is also the co-founder and served as the founding chair of the Association for the Philosophy of Judaism, which, if that's your area of interest, please check out their excellent website for content and information about upcoming events. Sam, it's an honor to have you here today.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you, Yosefa. Thank you.
0: I'll be honest and say that I first heard you on the 1840 podcast, Ah, where you spoke about one of the episodes about rational Judaism. Right. Right. And uh, I was I was really taken in, in general with that series and also yeah. with your conversation, which also just felt very candid and honest about you what you we can really speak and know about our Jewish life and traditions. So I'm thrilled to have you here. It's a
1: pleasure to be here.
0: So take us in to the story of Bavel, wherever, wherever that feels right for you today.
1: Sure. Well, I mean... It, it it's kind of funny, because if we're thinking about family uh, and interpersonal relationships, uh, the story of Bavel is not the obvious place to go in Pasha Noach. I mean, as as, as you mentioned in your kind of praise of the Pasha, yeah. there's a rich study to be written on uh, the the family of Noah and the dysfunctionality. that's finally manifest in that last scene you speak about when Noach uh, gets drunk and there's this... Uh, some sort of shameful incident between Ham and and Noah in his nudity and it's not exactly sure what happens and then and then the the reaction of Shem and and Yafet to that and then and I mean so there's lots we could speak about here whereas the story of Babel isn't obviously a story about families at all and yet I think there's something important to be said so let me start with one observation we talk about the story of Babel as the entire world was of one language. In fact, that's the first verse of, of chapter 11 of, of Genesis. Everyone on earth had the same language and the same words. And and they built this tower. And, and the response to whatever it was they did wrong, and it's a very enigmatic passage because it's not clear from the text at least what was actually wrong with what they were doing or what they were planning to do or what they had done or what they were going to do. But either way, the response of God is to uh, thwart their plans, to disperse them and to undermine this unity of language that they had by dividing their languages. But the peculiar thing about that is, what did you call it? The table of nations? Is that what biblical scholars call it? The table of nations happens at the end of chapter 10 before the story of Babel. And when it divides Noah's uh, progeny, so you've got all of the descendants of Ham and all of the descendants of Japhet and the descendants of Shem. Although we come back to the descendants of Shem, like you said, uh, after the story of Babel, because the descendants of Shem become the main focus because of Abraham. Nonetheless, when we divide these uh, families out, this is a recurring phrase of this table of nations. It says, Ela Vene X." Right? These are the descendants of so and so. One time it's Cham, one time it's Yafet, one time it's Shem. Let's take 11a Shem. And it says, which means we've, we've given a genealogy and we've divided them according to their families, according to their languages, according to their lands, and according to their nations. So it looks as if there's already a division of languages. Right, you got all these people and all these different languages. So then, what's happening in the beginning of chapter eleven when it says everyone had one language? You're like, what?
0: You know, I, I don't know if I'm gonna take anything that you plan on saying, yeah. but I'll say that from the the Bible side of things, not the philosophy yeah. side of things. I'm gonna leave that for you yeah. today. From the Bible side of things, so obviously this question comes up. It seems like it would be much more fitting for the Tower of Babel to be placed before the table of nations, uh, and the one of the answers that's given is that if the story of Babel would have come before chapter 10, then we would have looked at the dispersion of humans as only something negative. Mm. It would it would only be something that looks as if it's a, a punishment, or again, that question of it's of a punishment or a natural consequence. Mm. But because we put that before the story of Baville, it lets us know that while they did something wrong in that story with Baville, the general concept of diversity And of language diversity is something that, at its core, is a good thing. Yes, that's that's one idea that's offered. Yes, I think
1: that will be very resonant with some of the things I want to take from the story. Either way, we want to say something like linguistic diversity, cultural diversity, uh, um, national diversity was part of the plan, uh, um, and and, and therefore um, um, it's presented in the Book of Genesis as, as almost an ideal. I, I, I like that reading uh, very much, irrespective of the chronology. And we're going to see that. That one of the things that we learn from this, the, the story of Bavel is that God wants some sort of human diversity. OK, so good. So that's the first observation I, w- I, I want to make. And I also want to point out that when we're talking about diversity uh, in this model that the Table of Nations gives us, it's linguistic diversity, right? Because they're, they're divided according to their languages. It's geographical diversity, and that's important because I think that when people uh, develop a civilization in a given climate or a given environment, uh, those geographical kind of differences will make a, an impact on the human experience and therefore on the culture and therefore on the language. Clearly, the, the climate and the landscape in which we live are going to shape our, our, our experiences too, and it, that seems to be one of the things God wants us to have diversity of. Right, the human experience mm-hmm. should be lived out in different in different lands. There's a national diversity. It says according to their goyehem, according to their nations. But also, it says first among this list is according to their families, lemish yeah. Right. So, if we're thinking about what is the uh, ideal arrangement of humanity that Babel was something of a threat to, right? That ideal arrangement includes the existence of families. Okay, so that's my first observation.
0: Yeah, I think also that the, I I could say it also somewhat differently, that in... In the book of Genesis, the basis of all nations is family. Indeed, meaning we we look today at the base of nation could be their cultural aspiration, mm. or it could be their geography, or it could be a shared heritage. But in very clearly, the table of nations and perhaps in its antidote, mm. the story of Bavel says that at the basis of all society really needs to be familial tribes, yes. uh, which of course still exists in many societies today, and even as a culture, there are many ways. For example, that we see that sort of tribal base, family base, even in the state of Israel today. I mean, that's another topic that I often talk about with people who make Aliyah. They have to understand that they're coming to a place where everything surrounds people's families. And so when you're coming and you don't have that family base, you end up having to try and figure out how to create Mm. it because that's how the society organizes Mm -hmm. itself. But that's a side point about about life in Israel. So um,
1: the second observation I want to make is, is more broad scope observation about the location of the story in the book of Genesis as a whole, right? The story of Babel is, is in the final chapter of the pre-Abraham um, story. In fact, Abraham makes a little appearance right at the end of chapter 11. So, but the election of Abraham uh, happens in the first verse of chapter 12, right, which is the beginning of Pasha lechlecha Lecha. So, so if the Bible is the story of the Jewish people, its relationship with God, uh, its laws, its destiny, its mission. Um, the first 11 chapters, uh, you know, uh, it's something of a misnomer, like wh- what are they doing? They're, they're like the prelude to the main story of the Bible. From from the beginning of, of Parashat Lech Lecha to the end of Divrei at the end of Tanakh, it's, it's one long story about God and the Jewish people, you know, primarily. And yet chapters 1 to the end of 11, about something else and for for Rabbi Sachs um, my my teacher and mentor great inspiration to me for Rabbi Sachs this was um, a key to understanding the entire Jewish mission uh, to understanding what what those first 11 chapters of Sefer Bereshit are about which is that um, yes there is a particular relationship between God and the Jewish people and that's our focus as Jews but the God of the Jewish people is also the God of all of humanity. And there's this really interesting interplay in Judaism between particular, particularism and universalism. Um, And we don't give up on either pole of that spectrum, the particular and the universal. So for instance, Islam and Christianity are both religions who believe in um, one God for all of humanity but they also think there needs to be one religion for all of humanity, right? So it's kind of universal all the way, right? Where Whereas the Jewish people and the Jewish religion is unique in its belief in a God for all of humanity that, that manifests in a religion for a particular people. Um, and, and the story of of, um, of Genesis chapters 1 to 11 are laying the universalistic framework within which uh, the particular relationship between God and and, and and the Jewish people takes place. It's important to note that this is the location, chapters 1 to 12, the location of the, the, the seven mitzvahs of B'nai Noach, according to the rabbinic tradition. So this is where we learn what the universal responsibilities are for all of humanity. And finally, it's it's interesting to note that in Parshat Lech Lech, when God does elect Abraham, uh, he tells him why. He says... Um, All of the families of the world will be blessed through you. And I think it's just interesting to note again that, first of all, the election of the Jewish people has a purpose that's universal. Somehow, and we're not going to talk about it today, I imagine, but somehow the election of the Jewish people and their role in the service of God is supposed to be a good for the entire world. It's also interesting to note that the family uh, is the unit even of the Gentiles, that's going to receive this blessing ultimately, right? Mishpachot ha'adamah, all the families of the world. I think it would be beneficial now to look more closely at the Mm Sukkim. The first thing we're told about this project in Babel, that was everyone on earth had the same language and the same words, as we've already raised, it's not clear whether that was because this is before the Table of Nations occurred, before the dispersion that we're about to read, or whether it was a concerted effort to reunify after an, uh, you know, uh, a kind of natural dispersion post-flood. That's not clear. I think it's also important to look closely at the Hebrew of that particular verse. It says everyone on earth had the same language and the same words. That's one translation. But it's, uh, everyone was of one language, and the same things or the same matters. There are lots of different readings of this. In fact, uh, some go so far, as to read, and, and I'm talking about sources pre-communism. You see this in a You see this also in Rav Shemsh Hirsch on the, on the Pasha. The idea of Dvarim Achadim might be common ownership. Mm. You could translate the words that way. Everybody kind of co-owned everything. There was no private property, right? So, wow, mm-hmm. we've, got, we've already got this kind of very collectivist reading. It, it's, it's Babel as a communist state. It's important to look at verse 3 of the story. So what you, what you have here in, in verse 3, it's not quite the first um, use of technology in the Bible because we've already had some inventions already, for instance, um, uh, metal tools and, and, and musical instruments. But there is a, a move towards technology in verse 3 because they say, uh, come, let us make bricks and burn them hard. Brick served them as stone and bitumen served them as mortar. So instead of these natural ingredients, stone and mortar, uh, they're using uh, brick and bitumen, which they've manufactured. So you have an allusion to collectivism. You have an allusion towards industrialization, perhaps. This furnace is an important image for the rabbinic imagination. What I wanted to share with you, uh, Yosepha and your listeners, is um, a comment of the Nitziv. And before we get to him, I just want to point out that he's also keen uh, to raise this midrashic illusion in verse 3. What am I talking about? The furnace. So they bur- they they cook their bricks in the furnace. There's a famous midrash that Abraham, who's already alive at this time, um, was threatened by um by Nimrod to be thrown into this furnace. So it's not just that bricks are made in the furnace, but the furnace is also a disciplinarian, or, a, or it's, it's like a mode of, of torture or punishment or, or killing in this kind of totalitarian I state. i would obviously also
0: say that in the modern times, post-Holocaust, this also this image takes on a whole different level of, of significance. Absolutely,
1: absolutely.
0: I'll just take one step back, by the way, about the technology piece, which is that verse 3, which focuses on how they made their bricks. Mm-hmm. First of all, there's a very odd word called hava, which mm-hmm. means let mm-hmm. us. And it's used a number of times here. It may also be alluded to in the story of, of Paro in Egypt. Yes. There he also uses yes. the word hava. Um, when they plot, when um, they it's plot a, it's to It's a slaver. lot of, yeah. exactly. And there's some interesting parallels mm-hmm. there. I don't think we'll have time to talk about mm-hmm. today, but I'll just throw that nugget out to anybody who wants to think about that story in the, the first chapter of Shemot. But in this verse, there are many words spent on discussing the the creation of these bricks. And I agree with you that another element to this story is that there is not only perhaps a common criticism or discomfort that's reflected about diversity or lack of diversity in the world, but there's also a criticism here of technology. Meaning there's also a comment that is made about how technology needs to be uh, we need boundaries yes. when it comes to technology. And this story in that, through that prism is also utterly yes. relevant, obviously, to the world we live Absolutely. in today. Absolutely.
1: And then we've got verse four, which I think is crucial for understanding. I think we have a key to opening up what was motivating these people, these collectivist, industrial type people that we, we're painting a picture of. Um, they want to build this big tower with its uh, with its head in the heavens, says the, the fourth verse, which is why... Uh, some rabbis want to read it as some sort of war against god they're trying to invade their heavens but but i think more importantly for the direction i want to take us in and to bring us back to family um, they they say by building this tower we shall make for ourselves a name and um we we won't be dispersed somehow the tower the building of the tower will will prevent their dispersion which is ironic because it turns out to be the very thing that causes God, so to speak, uh, in the verses that follow, say, oh, what are they trying to do? I'm going to come down and disperse them just because they build uh, the tower. So what I wanted to do with yourself in the few minutes we have left is to focus on what the Natsiv has to say about this this phrase, lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. And I think it will bring us directly back to the attack that Bavel may have been on, on the flourishing of families.
0: I'll just briefly mention that we discussed the Nitziv in a, an earlier episode of the podcast with uh, with Simi Peters. It was episode, I believe it was seventy two. And I'll just remind us all the Nitziv is a uh, Rav Neftelitzviuda Berlin, who lived from eighteen sixteen to eighteen ninety three. One of sort of these preeminent modern voices uh, in the rabbinic world. So take us in. This is definitely one of his. I would say, more well-broadcasted yeah. uh, comments on yeah. the yeah, it's, it's
1: a fabulous piece. And I'm only going to look at it just a little bit, and I'll allude to more that he says as well. But he says, so lest we be scattered over all the face of the earth, he, he, he focuses in, he zooms in on that phrase, and he says, and I'll just read uh, um, the English translation that I, that I pillaged from Safaria. Um, say <laughs> so thank you to the good people at Safaria. says says, uh, however, we must understand why they feared that someone might lead to another land, and it is understood that this was related to the uniformity that was among them. And since the opinions of people are not identical, they feared that people might abandon this philosophy and adopt another. Therefore, they sought to ensure that no one would leave their society, and one who veered from this uniformity among them was judged with burning. Just as they did to our forefather Avraham in, in the Midrashic story where he is thrown by Nimrod into that furnace. And he continues, he says, and the Devarim Achadim, which we focused on, the same words, can also be seen as the fact that they would kill whoever did not think like them. He even goes so far as to say that the purpose of the tower was so that everyone would be seen. Because if you step yeah, was a spy it's tower. It's a spy tower. And this is before George Orwell writes about 1984 and it's before the rise of totalitarian Russia and, 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 and Germany, whatever. Um, it's an amazingly prescient comment about the, the future of Europe that, that the Nitzv was on the precipice of. But I think it's a, 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 um, you know also a very deep reading of, of, of what might have been the problem with Bavel that um, there's a type of universalism that requires uniformity And that's not natural for humanity. The only way to prolong that sort of uniformity is by force, because it it won't happen naturally. If you leave uh, a human culture um, to flourish in natural ways, it will splinter, it will divide, it will, you know, because people have different opinions and different ways of thinking and different ways of being. And if universalism is your primary objective for humanity, the only way to police that is with is with force.
0: But if you go back to this point about family, um, because they are presented as being, it's interesting, it's a very obvious play also on the family of Shem. Yes. Um, there's definitely here some sort of relationship between these people and the family that will eventually make a real name for themselves um, and, and not these people. But we also know that a natural impulse in in a family unit is also that, you know, we want to be cohesive, we want to be together. And we all know, since we're all part of them, that families are not like Mm -hmm. that. And even within a small unit of, you know, five, six, seven people, you'll have a diversity of opinion and thought. And and so certainly if that can't even be preserved in that kind of way within a small family unit, to think that one could preserve that on a national level, there's something somewhat ridiculous about that.
1: Exactly, exactly so the the last observation I want to make about the the, the story and how and and, and this is I, I hope what will bring us uh, full square back onto the notion of of a family and its importance in the kind of biblical imagination um, is some some comments from uh, Rabbi Sachs in his book The Dignity of Difference because as I said he 's very interested in this kind of duality between the universal aspects of Judaism and the particular aspects of Judaism. In contemporary philosophy, uh, in the wake of, of certain arguments put forward by Wittgenstein, there is a broad consensus that language can't develop in isolation. If you lived, if, you know, if you, like in the Jungle Book, if you were a baby who was just raised in the jungle and you didn't have any human interlocutors, other humans to speak with, uh, Wittgenstein says you'd have no language whatsoever, not even a language of thought. That's a controversial claim, but we can all recognise, I think, immediately that our vocabulary would be impoverished if we had to create all our own words, right? We we borrow words from the language we learnt, and the language we learnt has been spoke by people for, for generations before us. And we, we are the heirs, the linguistic heirs of these people, and we make use of their words to give us much more ability to articulate ourselves uh, the, that we could possibly have if we had to kind of invent a language from scratch.
0: in the past 20 minutes, I'm reminded about the word keen and about the word imagination. Right. So I've learned this in
1: the past 20 minutes. <laughs> right. so, so, so I think, um, you know, I think it's, like I said, uncontroversial that a private language that's to say a language invented by a single human being in isolation would either be impossible, which was Wittgenstein's claim, or at least be impoverished, right? So a human being needs to be part of a much larger network in order to be expressive. Fabulous. That's part of the universal picture. But we also need much smaller communities. We need families. Why? Why? And that's the question I want to ask. We Okay, we need linguistic communities. We also need smaller c- communities. Well, Rabbi Sachs thinks that it's only in the family that certain virtues are born. Okay. First of all, he says that, that biblical uh, morality, he writes, emphasizes the dual nature of our moral situation. On the one hand, we are members of the universal human family, and that much... Babel gets right, right, and that's why we have this Noahide covenant with all of mankind. The Seven Mitzvot they Noah talks about the three vignettes of Moshe's life before he becomes leader of the Israelites. is supposed to illustrate this because first he intervenes to rescue an Israelite from an Egyptian, then an Israelite from a fellow Israelite, and then he he. He tries to to save the non-Israelite daughters of of Yitro, of Jethro, from the non-Israelite shepherds who are preventing them from watering their flock. So Moshe clearly recognises the universal character of injustice and fights against it. But Rabbi Sack says, on the other hand, we're members of a particular family with its specific history and memory. We are a part of a thick or context-bound morality which confers on us loyalties and obligations to the members of the community that go beyond mere justice. We have duties to our parents and children, friends and neighbours, and the members of society considers as an extended family. I think one way to think of this, Yosefa, is as is, is concentric circles. You start with the individual, and then there's the family, and then there's the community, and then there's the nation, and then there's the, the, the brotherhood of humankind as a whole. And it's as if each circle, uh, Within, the concentric, within this kind of set of concentric circles gives meaning to the next one or even to the one before it, right? To the one before it and the one after it. Who would I be as an individual if I didn't have a family? And what would my family be if it wasn't part of the community? What my community be? And so on and so forth. In fact, later on, he says that one of the great intellectual discoveries of the 20th century is that the I, I the personal pronoun, the ani, anochi, is actually a fiction or, at the very least, an abstraction because... And this is where he talks about the private language argument, right? If you were all alone, what would you be, right? Um, He says that that Adam um, is only called Ish, and the word Ish means person. Adam is only called a person when he calls his wife Isha. So it's only in the context of an interpersonal relationship do you become a person, And basically, to cut a very long story short, Rabbi Sachs thinks that if all you have is the individual and very big communities, the only sorts of relationships you'll have are contractual relationships. Those are the sorts of relationships you have with strangers. Mm -hmm. Covenantal relationships, he says, are where we develop the grammar and syntax of reciprocity, where we help others and they help us without calculations of relative advantage These are the places where trust is born. And without them, there wouldn't be selves. So you wouldn't even have the kind of wherewithal to make it in the big world outside and to form contracts with strangers, right? Um, Contracts, social or economic, he says, mediate relationships between strangers. But if we were always and only strangers to one another, we wouldn't have a reason to trust one another. And that's why they had to build a tower in Babel, I would add, right, to look at what one another's is doing because they mistrust one another because all they've got is this collective of humanity. The possibility, he says, would always exist and always have to be taken into consideration that the other will defect, says Rabbi Sachs, when it's in his or her interest to do so. A world systematically bereft of fidelity or loyalty would be one in which neither states nor markets would ever get underway. He wants to say, this is a big theme of Rabbi Sachs, writing right throughout his career. He thinks that the market, the economic market, he says, depends on virtues not produced by the market. Mm -hmm. He says that the state, the state, the, the, the political state in which we live, says it depends on virtues not created by the state. Where are they created? His answer is in families in communities, in friendships, in congregations, voluntary associations and fellowships of various kinds. In short, he says, wherever people are brought together, not by exchange of wealth or power, by but by commitment to one another or to a larger cause they serve in common.
0: So also to import into a different society, that's one of the many ideas offered about why the founding fathers used the Bible as a basis for the sort of the model of the founding of of America um, because they were aware of the fact that people needed much more to bind them together than even political commonality and they needed something that was going to be a moral base. And I think that's a similar idea that he's expressing from a different century, from a different uh, national angle. And I
1: think the founders of Babel were just unable to recognize that. The brotherhood of man, which is something that is worth striving for, needs to it can't be the foundation it's an achievement that we arrive at much later on in humanity in the jewish vision at yemota mashiach because if it's not built on the foundations of smaller groups families friendships communities uh, you know individual nations it's going to be synthetic rather than organic and the only way to hold it down will be by force
0: I think that brings us really back to that point about why all of the genealogies, which we've sort mm. of glossed over, uh, because you know, in a podcast of a half hour, if you choose one moment of the party yeah. to speak about, but all these genealogies in the first eleven chapters of the Book of Rashit, which we often just gloss over, mm. they seem not so interesting, but they really underscore this point exactly, mm. which is at the basis of the entire world is a family structure. Right. And if we lose focus of that family structure, then we will lose focus of how the world itself really functions. That's right. You
1: could ask, well, why doesn't it start with the individual rather than the family? And I think Rabbi Sachs' answer is there's a sense in which without being a part of a family, the individual is impoverished. I mean, you can't... The family is, in a sense, the really the smallest unit. The family is where the siblings learn to negotiate to forgive... Eventually to trust the, you know, these, these are the moral training grounds and without them, um, you know, you you can't build a community and without communities, you can't build nations. And I think some people think that, that, that nationalism um, is essentially related to racism, right? And we do see that with a lot of nationalists. But no, no. On the contrary, I think on Rabbi Sachs's picture, it's by learning to be a member of a family, you learn to be a member of a community. By learning to be a member of a community, you learn to be a member of a nation. And by learning to be a member of a nation, you, you start to be able to value what it is that other nations value about their identity. So you're able to become part of a brotherhood of man. So that's the basic picture.
0: I think I'll I'll just sort of end with a comment, which is that I think the complexity really enters into our lives because families communicate in different ways. Yes. So the way that you know the Liebens family communicates yes. and the way that the vogel slash Ruhl family communicates, there are family structures that look the same on the outside, mm-hmm. but they're actually very different mm-hmm. on the inside. And so I think that that's sort of the birthplace of a lot of the complexity that people have within their families mm-hmm. and also with how to be able to sort of imitate those relationships on broader levels, which I'll also just say to our listeners, I opened with a passage just about that from Rabbi Sachs in last week's episode uh, on Sheet, where he speaks about the family is the blueprint for every other larger web that we can yes. have in our in our lives. And that's the reason why the Torah begins with family yes. as opposed to beginning with a nation, uh, simply because it would be the wrong place yes. to start how we, how we communicate with the world. Yes. But I think that in that same vein, when there is some sort of failure or a a short-circuiting that happens within the family structure there's something about it that is so difficult and and stays with us and we have such a hard time sort of moving past it because it stands so much at the foundation of who we are if we have a difficulty with a friend it might also really really bother us and stay mm-hmm. with us in our heart but it doesn't it doesn't unwind us necessarily in the same way that family structures if they don't develop in a way that are peaceful enough. Yes. it uh, can the, be something that really stay with well. us for such a long time. Yeah and
1: I think I think you're making a fabulous point because I think also it's actually the seed of linguistic diversity too is the family. Because we, we all have our own languages in a sense, like like you said. Um, there's there's this amazing we well, don't have time to talk about it. But there's this amazing Rav um, Sadok in in uh, in the pre tzadik where he says that the real problem with Babel wasn't that they had one language. The Bible has two words for language, a Safa and a lashon. And it, it's described as having one Safa. A Safa is the lip and the Lashon is the tongue. Mm. He thinks this re- corresponds to two ways of using language. One way of using language is from the lip and outward, which is like a superficial use of language where you're not really expressing deep down who you really are. And the lashan is where you really have deep interpersonal connections because you re- you express the, your language, something that's internal to you. And um and I, I suppose that that it's only in the family that that we have uh, that we learn the skills to understand ourselves and to express ourselves in a way that could be called a lachan rather than merely a safar. Wow, yeah,
0: that's a that's a beautiful idea. I never heard that yeah, before. It's amazing. Okay, we're going to have to end this even <laughs> yes, for a very yes, long time. <laughs> yeah. So now you see how <laughs> Thank it's you so a family. It's all about
1: families. The Babel. It's all about families.
0: <laughs> yeah, we can we can keep going forever. <laughs> Thank you so much. It really was a a pleasure and an honor to be able to have this conversation with you.
1: Absolutely. Lovely to meet you. Thank you.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel Rubel, and this is One On One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one on one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at at podcast.matan.org.il. That's podcast.matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.